This is Saren Kohli. You're listening to We Are All Africans, a safe space for Africans with a wide range of backgrounds to discuss their being in a globalized world. So please take a seat and listen. What is your name and what does it mean? My name is Farid Farid and in Arabic it means unique and since I'm double unique it doesn't get any more unique than that. I wanted to be called Mike. That's a common name, but I wanted to like cuz I like Michael Jordan, I want to be like Mike. But that didn't fly. My dad suggested Frederick when we migrated to change my name and to make it sound more white. And I was like, "No, nah, you know what, man? I'll stick to Farid. I'll take the hits. It's fine. Let me stick with Farid. I don't want to be called Frederick. I mean, that's that's terrible." What is your family background? We're from Egypt, where I'm also currently living and working. So we would consider ourselves um, ethnically Egyptian, but we also have um, a cultural background, religious background. We're also called Coptic Orthodox. Um, so being Coptic is the Greek term for the term Egyptian. So I gaptos, and then that means Egypt in Greek, and then so what we're called is Coptic coming from the word igaptos so it means egyptian of the land of egypt the coptic language is similar to greek besides seven letters so even when french uh, colonialist explorers champollion came to egypt he figured out hieroglyphics from going to a coptic monastery understanding the language and then from there he could go from the coptic to the demotic to the hieroglyphic which is the rosetta stone which is now stolen and is in the british museum in london so uh, christianity came into egypt only a few years after christ was a pivotal figure in the mediterranean and it really is the first african country that embraced christianity with its own indigenous heritage so even the months that are used in the coptic calendar are the same months used in the hieroglyphic ancient egyptian language of the nile flooding and rising and flowing so these elements are still there besides all of that that sense of minority is there because of the numbers like it's a numbers game so you have about 15 million copts to around 85 million muslims and then in daily life you don't feel it so much in the major cities because they're more cosmopolitan but still there are lots of sectarian incidents of violence um and that's mostly in the rural south burning of churches women being kidnapped and forced to convert incidents of like targeting people who have alcohol shops they're normally christians but i think for me i don't feel it on a daily basis because i live in a in a city it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen i mean 
the cathedral in Egypt was the target of a terrorist bombing by ISIS in 2016, where lots of people died. The year after, major churches in Alexandria, including the cathedral there and another major Egyptian town, ISIS claimed responsibility. So there is that. Plus the state itself and the general feeling from the larger population is that, you know, Christians are different somehow, even though they're indigenous. Uh, They were here pre-Islam, which entered the country in the seventh century. I have a funny story in that the first idea of that I understood that I was different is that I was at school and I was sitting next to a cute girl named Gigi and I didn't understand Arabic at that point because I was born in Saudi Arabia, ironically the birthplace of Arabic, but I only spoke English because we grew up in like a foreign setting. So when I came to school in Egypt, what you have is religious classes. It's mandatory. So automatically you're already split up in that identity. So depending on your upbringing, you're either Muslim and you're Christian. The Muslims stay normally in class and because Christians are minority, let's say five students out of a class of 30, they leave, they go to a class somewhere else to learn about their religion while the Muslim kids learn about their religion sitting on the same desks. I didn't understand. So I just stayed in my desk next to Gigi. She started teaching me like how to say a surah, like a a chapter in the Holy Quran. And I was good, man. Like I tell you, I was wholeheartedly embracing the religion just because she had pigtails and she looked cute. And then like half an hour later, the um, teacher for the Christian religious classes comes starts talking to me in English, starts saying, you're Farid, can you say the, um, you know, our Holy Father, blah, 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 our Father who art in heaven. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can say that. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, but you're Christian. I'm like, yes. She's like, well, sorry, you're going to have to come with me now. And I'm like, I got to tell you what, it's the first moment of heartbreak when you look at your prospective girlfriend and she just looks at you and she's like, oh, Jesus, I knew it. I knew it different. And I just had to leave. It was so embarrassing. It was so humiliating. And just like that first idea of difference, of knowing that like you got to go up to the roof to sit on a class with these pigeons sitting next to you and you're different. Why can't I sit in my own seat, like my desk next to Gigi? So that's the first time I understood that we're the minority. So we have to give up the seat, so to speak. There is discrimination in daily life because uh, Coptic names, they adopt Christian names like John or Paul. So there's a feeling that they're different, that they're Western even, even though we have nothing to do with the West. Even Protestant and Evangelical missionaries, American and British, who came at the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries to proselytize, to convert Muslims, but they couldn't convert Muslims. So they started converting other Coptic Christians. So even then, they started seeing them as different. 
this idea that you're Arab or African and Christian at the same time is a hard concept to fathom because normally Arab is associated or Arabic is associated with the language of the Quran. Hence, you must be Muslim. So how can you speak Arabic, but you ain't Muslim? So it's all of these things that you're negotiating with your identity. Very early on in your childhood, so you understand that you're different. In a country where you speak the same language, you look like the rest of the people, but there's something different about you. So I think it shapes how you see yourself. And I think that's carried on with me, subconsciously or consciously. I was born in Saudi Arabia and then moved to Egypt, then New Zealand, then Australia. And then I continued my own journey because I couldn't sit still. And then I went to Germany and then Egypt. And that's enough. They were never satisfied, my parents, with being back in Egypt and the opportunities for their careers and I and for our upbringing. They're both uh, medical doctors. You know, what's interesting is that I'm, I'm reading, it's the same conditions that made them leave, but just worse. I think there's like 62% of the Egyptian doctors are not in Egypt. They're either overseas or dead or just not working as doctors. <laughs> They're either overseas or dead? Yeah, it said that in the report, man. Don't mock the report. It said they're dead. I think they died because they're doctors and it's not good being a doctor here. It doesn't pay well and you get exposed to a lot of diseases and yeah, it's very tragic. So I think that's why they left. How was your life in New Zealand? Did you enjoy your childhood? We, it looked like we had a happy childhood from the photos. Like we were having fun. Like it was a relaxed life. That was the beginning of my teens. I was 12. It was weird. It was weird. You're coming from a city of, back then it was like 10 million. Now it's 20 million in Cairo. And the whole country in New Zealand is 3 million. So it was just a big culture shock. But I remember it was easy. We used to go to school in barefoot. We wouldn't wear shoes or sandals during summer. And my parents thought, like, what the fuck is wrong with these people? So I would wear my sandals while my parents dropped me off or as I'm leaving home. And then I would join the white kids because I was the only or one of the few brown kids there and take off my sandals so I could fit in just because I wanted to fit in. You know, I didn't understand the accent. The accent is very thick. And uh, I didn't understand that the whole school was going to a sports day 
the next day. I'm the only one who went to school with my school uniform on. And then like I had to ring home. My mum had to walk like five kilometers to get me the sports stuff. And then I wore it. And then it was, you were separated into four, it was called houses, but like four groups. I was yellow. So of course you want to show school colors and school spirit. So they would paint your t-shirt yellow, like with a spray can or put it on your arms. The problem was I was the only one of, if not the only brown kids. So if you put yellow or gold, it was gold. On my brown, I looked like a ball of just gold running through the sun, very slow because I was fat. It took 17 seconds to run 100 meters and the sun is shining. It was just beautiful sight. Like it was just that absolute, <laughs> it was just so sad. <laughs> it was just, but I lost weight. I, I lost weight. I'm, I'm fat again now, but I lost weight then. For how long did you stay in New Zealand? We stayed for like seven years. This is mid 90s. And then we, we went to Australia and, and my family is still in Australia until now. I think a New Zealand got too small for us and we wanted, my parents wanted opportunity and I like New Zealand. It was cool, but a lot of my friends were leaving. They were mostly Egyptian and they were leaving to go to Australia. So I think it was like in one summer, I had like 20 friends leave. That's when we left. We left early 2000s. We arrived to Australia and it's a place called Brisbane. That was easier to transition into because we know the language. We know Australia is very much like New Zealand besides the racism. So we could fit in. It was an easier transition for us. Is Australia a racist country? It's no secret, but Australia is a very racist country because it hasn't dealt with indigenous past. And that continues till today. It locks up refugees and that's become normal. It's done that for years. And everyone thinks Australia is great. It's a great country, but indigenous mortality rate is the highest in the world or one of the highest. That all comes from that colonial past. Whereas New Zealand, I think the difference is there is a Maori population or the indigenous population in New Zealand, but I think um, it's more progressive. And I think that has carried on in the culture overall. I was very happy to be Kiwi, Kiwi meaning New Zealander. I think I was very happy to adopt that identity, like just through school culture, rugby, all of that stuff. So when I went to Australia, I didn't think it was a big deal for me. I wanted to meet new people. Australia is very multicultural. There's every nationality you could think of. So that was interesting. When did you realize that you were African? I think during my political awakening in my late teens. What happened? I read books. <laughs> I sound like someone who doesn't read books, but I promise you read the right books. I read the right books. So I think I read Frantz Fanon, uh, Edward Said, even though Edward Said doesn't talk about being African, but that's, I understood my identity in a different way. You start reading 
other authors, mostly male. I don't know why I gravitated towards that. It was like first year of university and that's when I started thinking, okay, there's a bit more. I mean, I must have understood on a subconscious level, but because Egypt is extremely racist, I think I'd just go from one racist country to the next. Now, Egypt is extremely racist in how it sees itself, but then there's a deep African history embedded and still until now that I went searching for these examples of a pan-African cultural link. And I, and I still am very excited about that as part of my own research or understanding of, of like how Cairo, especially as a modern-day city, uh, functioned as an important hub of, of African culture. So you said that Egypt is very racist. How are the manifestation of racism in Egypt? Well, first off, most Egyptians hate black people. So that's number one. So, I mean, if you start with that, then you're already at a problem. That's like, okay, even though Egyptians are brown on the whole, nobody you get as white, as fair as in terms of um, physical looks, from white, blonde, blue-eyed, and then you get as dark as you can in the same country, especially Nubians. So if you look at their reality of Nubians until now, they are still discriminated against. So that filtered throughout society because of a combination of factors. The religion, the major religion being Islam, and also just the cultural factors at bay and, and how Egypt was pivotal to slavery in the Arab world and during the Ottoman times. So that has persisted until now. And people are terrible when it comes to, to their ideas of what blackness is and how that is synonymous with the rest of Africa. So they don't see themselves as African. So if you would say that, people would be like, no, I'm Egyptian or I'm Arab, but where is the continent? Yes, I could play in Africa. I win the African Cup of Nations. So it's a very um, disjointed. So why are you playing in the African Cup of Nations if you don't think of yourself? So or why, why are you participating in all of these events, regional? Why are you in the African Union? Why are you the head of the African Union? So at a political level, I think the leadership, even though it's very um, autocratic in some ways, in a lot of ways, is probably more progressive than people on the ground, which is, and that's another disjuncture. Uh, because they recognize the power of, of being an African leader, and I think that's because of our history uh, from 50s, 60s. Since then, there hasn't been that idea of like, oh, it's normal that we see ourselves of, uh, as African. That's really changed where we became more Arab and, or more Muslim or more tribal. So that's one way or, or a lot of the ways that Egyptian society is, is, is structured on racism. But at the same time, there's millions of black Africans who are in Egypt as businessmen, as refugees. So it's a very weird, I'm talking about Cairo especially, it's a very weird city in that way. It's a very violent, but also hospitable city. How about Egyptian younger generations?
young kids, like teenagers, who are independent of any identity. Teenagers are terrible. I think we can all agree on that. Teenagers, early 20s, these people shouldn't be with us on the same planet. Teenagers will listen to rap and hip-hop and then will be very excited when there are references to Egypt because it's there. Or when Afri- especially African-Americans will reference Egypt land of the Nubians, so on, or they would see or project Egypt as black. And the kids here would be excited. Okay. But the disjuncture is that he or she would say the N-word or not understand it. I would get excited. I would get excited when Nas would talk about Egypt and, like, he'd have a hip-hop video and dressed up as a pharaoh and... You know, so why is Egypt uh, so important as an imaginary for not just African-Americans, but a lot of Africans as well? I think there is a sense of pride in Egypt as a civilization. But then Egyptians don't identify with that. We don't even identify with that civilization. I think that's because of religion and because of we've become Arabized because of the language. We don't even call ourselves North African. So people in Morocco and Tunisia would do that. But we don't call ourselves North African. Beside Arabic, are there other languages spoken in Egypt? I think there's a lot of uh, minority, back to that theme, minority languages that are spoken. So like if you go to the West, in the Western Desert, there's Amazigh. There's actual Amazigh, like the ones in Algeria, like Kabil in Algeria or Amazigh in Morocco. So that's one language, but we don't know anything about it. And if you go down south, Nubian is also a language, and actually Nubian language, there's a lot of efforts now for people to start speaking it and to be proud of it. But the main language is Arabic. What do you remember about your childhood in Cairo? I remember uh, summer nights, rooftops, all the family going up, we take mattresses because it's so hot. So you'd go up, up on the roof of the building, lay the mattresses down. We take our bikes there because it's massive. And then we just roam around like all the kids, the cousins. And I'd listen in on my auntie's conversations. I have a few aunties. So I remember that. I didn't even think of myself as Egyptian per se. I mean, that wasn't a question for me. I knew that we were different because we were a minority, so I got that um, because I understood what discrimination was. But I was barely figuring it out. Like in Egypt under Mubarak, I knew that there were red lines. I knew that there, you couldn't talk about everything. And... I knew that I couldn't say some things in front of the a policeman or that I couldn't joke. So if that necessarily made it Egyptian or I didn't know anything else, that was what's in front of me. So you learn to live with that. Yes, and the school, there's inculcation and um, national curriculum of like, you know, in the morning we salute the flag and we say the anthem. So I understood that. And from, of course, from football, 
Then you understand we're in Africa. So that's about it. It's not very sophisticated. But like, oh, we're playing in the African Cup. We're not playing in the World Cup, as always. What kind of conversation did you have with your parents around culture and religion? Um, a lot of Jesus. I mean, you'd get a lot of Jesus. That's it. You want Jesus for breakfast or lunch or dinner? Like, what do you want? I used to be religious. I used to be very religious. I would go to church every week. I mean, I'm religious when I go and visit my parents. It's, it's interesting that I had to escape to Egypt to escape being religious. But everywhere around you, people are either going to church or going to mosques. I loved uh, church. Uh, I still love it. I can't run away from it. But I have a different relationship with it because I can't say I lost my religion. Uh, that I'm not an atheist. I think it's informed my identity so much, so I can't let go. We wake up very early. I mean, this is the joke I always tell my dad. My dad is so disciplined. Like, I think religion was made for him. It doesn't matter what kind of religion. It's the sense of discipline. My dad gets up at ungodly hours in the morning. I mean, he's at church before Jesus is at church. Like, that's how punctual he is. It's ridiculous. Like, he's there before the priest, even before Jesus. Like, Jesus hasn't woken up in heaven. Like, that's how, so he's that mindset. And he never used to be religious. And my dad was a Marxist and because that's what Egypt was. And I think he, he lost faith in socialism. So as with a lot of people who were, you know, seduced by ideology, he turned towards religion. So he's very disciplined, like he will fast, he will go vegan, you know, that's what people do. And then we go to church, we spend about three hours praying, and then by the time you're home, you're, you want to sleep, you're smashed. And I think also because it's seen as a mark of progress, being atheist or atheistic in Western culture, so that also gives me a sense of resistance where I'm like, mm, I don't know how I feel about that. But I know I'm not religious anymore. You don't see me running to church anymore. But there's also a lot of community and all of that. So that's the nice thing about because you meet your friends, you do things, there's community, there's a social aspect to it. But, you know, it's problematic because, I mean, it's in the name because we've had a big uh, resurgence of Me Too in Egypt. It happened across a lot of sex sections of society. And one of the sections was the church. And I never thought I'd see the day where sexual misconduct and abuse and violence would be reported on because the church, it's as bad as the Catholic. I don't know if it's as bad, but any structures where men are in the picture, you know that it's bad. So um, it's in the name. Our name, it's the Coptic Orthodox Patriarchate. And I'm like, what did you expect? Like, it's in the fucking name. Like, we say it loud and clear. It's from the Greek, but still, it's still patriarchy. So no wonder there was abuse. Actually, I mean, it's surprising. A few priests were, nothing legally happened, but they were barred from being priests. That's not justice, of course. Uh, and these were reported in America, nothing in Egypt, North America, but still amongst Coptic communities there. 
that in itself and the church acknowledged it and barred them from being priests but still that doesn't solve the problem but for me i never thought i'd see the day I think I have a better perspective of who I am today because I live in Egypt. So even when I go back to Australia, I don't have the same identity issues that I felt I had in my teens or in my 20s. I feel like because I'm living in the shit, like in the mess of life, like there's so much life here. It's too much. It's the third most populous country in Africa. And Cairo, it's the most populous in Africa. I think 20 million, I think it's number one. So it's, it is so much life here. And it doesn't mean that you don't wrestle with philosophical or existentialist questions, but I think it, it's a matter of privilege because you're engaged here. And one reason I came back into Egypt is because the revolution in 2011, 10 years, people started questioning a lot of things about society, religion, politics, being African. The revolution was also called the Arab Spring. What do you think about that term? So Arab Spring is shorthand, I think, because of the Western frame of understanding events beyond the reach of history. People tend to make it snappy or coin these terms. Uh, so it's like the Prague Spring or all of that of 1968. So I understand the term. I don't think I like it any time. So I just call it Arab Revolutions. Because um, it was a revolution. People might call it an uprising. People might call it protests. But in my mind, I just call it Arab revolutions. There was a terrorist attack three weeks before the Egyptian revolution. It hit a church, which is a big thing. People killed all of that. It really shook up Egypt. And that was three weeks before like it all started. And I remember writing about it, like in an Australian newspaper, because I started getting into journalism as a commentator. Even then, I could feel it. Like, I go back to that article time and time again, because I'm like, and I kick myself. So it's my biggest regret. Like, why didn't I pack up my bag and go? Like, I think I blame my parents. And I'm like, why didn't we migrate somewhere else? We should have migrated, but why didn't we migrate to like London? or somewhere in Europe where I could have just gotten on in a plane and not thought about it. But, you know, you're on the arse end of the world. That's what we call Australia and New Zealand, like really the bottom of your ass. So the arse end of the world, and it's expensive and it's hard to just catch a plane. It takes 24 hours to get there. So I still regret that. I think I'm mean, like, how it could have changed my life if I was on the ground. But, you know, one of my best friends, came to Australia. He was in Egypt 
And he's like, I'm going to come early so I could teach at university, be prepared for my course. And I'm like, fuck, man, why didn't you turn around? Just turn around. Why did you catch that plane? And he was there with all of the, the major leaders at a house party like two days before the revolution erupted. And it was an eruption. It was an eruption that turned into a rupture because it broke something fundamental. It broke the barrier of fear that we all felt as a young generation and the older generations who stayed. They didn't stay silent for decades, but it never amounted into this. And then it also broke the taboo or the the saintly halo around these leaders. We never thought we could get them. So it started with Ben Ali in Tunisia. And then now, like, Mubarak was the big one because Egypt's the most populous country in the Arab world, the most populous in North Africa, and probably the third most populous in Africa. So, like, when you when you knock down Mubarak, you know, afterwards you could knock down Mugabe. So it gives you that power. And eventually these things happened, at least with Mugabe. I never thought I'd see the day that that would happen as well. So there's something there. There's an energy, there's a euphoria. We didn't sleep for three weeks. You know, I didn't sleep. I'm on news channels and I'm just so proud. I'm like, it's just madness and passion and power and love in the air. And it's all mixed in with tear gas and Molotov cocktails and bullets. So it's scary. You're on the precipice of history. You're literally making history with every movement of your body, facing a brutal militaristic and police power. Why is the 25th of January important? The 25th of January was originally police day. It's to honor and commemorate police in their uprising against British colonists. So the irony is that the police or the regime afterwards, after they kicked the British out, is that they became the colonists. They became imperialist, power-hungry, bloodthirsty bastards. That's why people, just like what you have in Nigeria, what you have in America, what you have in France, it, it started against police brutality and for the interior minister to go, but then it just swelled and grew and expanded and, and multiplied into like, let's get the bastards out. So people wanted the downfall of the regime. Now, I come back a few years afterwards. Yeah, I managed to catch some of it in late 2012, early 2013, but nothing compares to the first moments. What does it mean for you to be African? I'm thinking, I'm thinking. So what does it mean? Like now that um, how I see myself in that identity is that, that there's something that connects us all, whether we like it or not. And I want to try and find from my work or my research or my journalism to find these linkages because the whole um, master narrative is that we are separate and there is a lot of differences, absolutely. But I think there is enough linkages between Africans to make it stick as a continent. 
that go beyond skin differences. So that for me is, is what I, I would like to, and I don't mind saying I'm Afro-Arab. I don't mind that. So I would see myself in that mold, I think because of the language especially. When do you feel most African? When I feel most African is by myself is when I am reading histories of people who come through Egypt and have seen it or they talk about it or they write about it as a matter of fact African place. Maya Angelou lived in Cairo for like two years and I spoke with her grandson. Maya Angelou, like what the fuck was she doing in Cairo? And then other people like James Baldwin went to Turkey and then Malcolm X came here and, you know, Nkrumah's wife was Egyptian, so all of that. So I think when I read these little nuggets of information, that makes me feel like, oh, there's an immense shared history. And that's when I say, oh, yes, I am African. And when do you feel less African? Um, I'm trying to think, like, what are you, less African? I don't, I don't know if I can, I can feel that. It's just, it's part of my identity and that's it. I, I, I don't know if, I, if I'm made to feel less. No. Yes, that's who you are. And what do you love about being African? So I've got to be honest with you. I think this all happened at the same time when I had my first girlfriend. And that was also around the same time when I started discovering who I am and my sense of Africanness. She was from Zimbabwe and I was so interested. So I think that also helped my political, social awakening in how it wasn't just about where you're from. So in one imaginary, Cairo and Egypt is extremely African, and I like that. So I also am part of that heritage. It's not like I'm the first or the last. Not a choice, but like if you want to be progressive, then you should think that way. You said that Egyptians are racist and they hate black people. So you were in Australia, your girlfriend was Zimbabwean, I assume that she was black. And what was the reaction of your parents when they first met her? I love that scene. It's like out of a, a soap opera because my mom sat like three meters away. I think she was shocked because I just bought her. I mean, it wasn't fair to my girlfriend, but I was like, no, we're going to do this. I'm going to tell them I have a girlfriend, blah, blah, blah. It's, I wasn't so much thinking that she's black or Zimbabwean or whatever. It's just that I have a girlfriend and that we're fooling around. <laughs> like that's the main issue. So I think my mom was just surprised that I know girls um, who aren't Egyptian, let alone like fully formed girls with who like walk and talk and they fucking eat and shit. <laughs> like, you know, so... I think that was the miserable reaction. And then my dad, because he's a charmer, my dad just starts going straight into like telling her, listen, this is what's happening in your country. And she's like, yeah, you're right. My dad just starts talking about politics. And I think that calmed me down. My mom was freaking out because she was like, what the fuck is happening? And then I was like, okay, I think that's good. And, and then at, in the car, I'm like, I think that went well. Great. Let's go have a drink. <laughs> that went well. Was that, was that good for you? 
What was your girlfriend's reaction in that environment? You're going to have to ask her, but like, <laughs> I think she'd be like, wow, <laughs> how long have you got? But I think she understood very quickly. She had a good way of analyzing and understanding how people react to her because she had practice from the larger society. So this wasn't divorced from it. It was different. It was different because it's, it's brown people. But I think we also were good for each other or we had a good relationship. Other people looked at us because it was also different. In Australia, interracial relationships are something different. Where is Egypt going? And where do you see yourself in that? What's your hope? The, the hope is, I mean, I use one of my good friends and she's an archaeologist. She's like, our ceiling of ambitions is so low after it was so high a decade ago. Like a decade ago would have been like, ah, oh, I want LGBT rights enshrined in the constitution. I want, I want fast internet. I want like gender neutral bathrooms. The ceiling of ambition or expectations is so low. At this point, I would just like all the prisoners who were held unfairly to be released. I mean, that's the least of my hopes. People are rotting in jail and they're young and they're smart and they're, they have lives and they shouldn't be in jail. So that's number one for me. Uh, where is Egypt going? Where do I see myself? I don't know if I'm going to stay here for that long. It's not looking good, but you always hold hope. It's not looking good. Now it's just it's sad. And a whole generation, including my generation, have, have really been broken. And now I'm here. I think what describes the moment that we're living in is um, a poem by Konstantin Kavavi. Konstantin Kavavi was arguably Greece's most famous modern poet in the 20th century, 19th, 20th. And he grew up in Alexandria. He was born and raised in Alexandria. A Greek, gay, living in Egypt, marginalized, privileged. But he wrote this beautiful poem called Waiting for the Barbarians. And it talks about, you know, waiting for the armies and confronting them. And I think that's what's happening now. We're waiting for the barbarians to just, and we have so many pent up emotions and frustrations every day. There are these humiliations that just motivate you to just say, fuck it. It's very dark. It's extremely dark. And I mean, I wish I was here when it was light and happy and euphoric and there was love in the air and everyone's enjoying life and the power that comes with knocking down a president, forcing a president to leave after 30 years in power is just unheard of. You know, there's just so much happiness and energy and promise and sex and so many um, emotions. 
And now it's just been one pile of sadness on top of the other. But I think it's important to be here and to document all of the tragedies, horror-filled tragedies that we're experiencing. People in jail, people being killed, people being disappeared off the face of the earth. It's a common tactic of previous regimes, but especially with this regime. I think it's important that I'm here. So I'm, I'm quite thankful because amidst all this trauma and madness, uh, there are uh, voices of sanity and um, there's pockets of joy somehow. You just learn to live and create life, even though there's so much death around you. I'm thankful that I'm here. I, I, I think it's important that I'm here. I don't know how long I'm gonna last, but you know, I just keep waiting for the barbarians. Thank you so, so much, Farid, for sharing such a rare perspective on Africanness and to all the people held unjustly in jails in Egypt. We think of you, we don't forget you, and we'll fight for you. Sound editing and sound design, Emiliano Matos. This is Saren Coley. You're listening to We Are All Africans. See you next Wednesday en français.